I love saying that. Open your Bibles. And I love pastoring a church that loves to hear that. Thank you for being a people of the book. And this morning, as we take a look at this text, we're going to share with you the church's equality. The church's equality. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let's stand again and let's read verses 1 and 2. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they're brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. You may be seated. This morning, we have a couple with us that many of you have been praying for, and they're home from the mission field. I love when our missionaries come home for furlough. We're working on plans to have Andrew to preach for us in a couple of weeks. And so, Andrew, we've been praying for you. We know you've been praying for us. If you would, I'm going to ask you to pray for this church body this morning as we open up God's Word. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to be together with my brothers and sisters here at Lawndale. Lord, would you stir in our hearts all the more the mission that you have here on earth to reveal your glory in all the land, to save people, Lord, from their sins, to offer us a hope and a future with you, Lord. Father, I pray that this church would pray more more and more fervently, Lord, and that in their prayers, Lord, that you would sanctify their doctrine, that they believe, that they would believe truly about you and your character and about your mission to their neighbors, Lord. I pray as they they give, Lord, that they would live differently so that they can give generously. Father, I pray as they go that they think about going, sure, internationally, Lord, like you've called my family, but that they would think about going across the street to their neighbors, inviting people to their dinner tables, Lord to the other desk at their offices, Lord, or at their schools, to their co-workers and their friends, Lord, to their family members that are lost, Lord. Think about going and that you would send them out, Lord, in that way as you sent Jesus that you would send them. Father, I pray that in their sending, Lord, as they've sent me and Leah and our two kids to Columbia, Lord, I pray that they would raise up more and more children and youth and young adults and retirees and people in the middle of their careers, Lord, to send them out on mission here in the States or on mission internationally, Lord, Lord, that you would guide them in paths of righteousness for your name's sake, Lord, as they pray, give, go, and send. Thank you, Father, for this community of faith here, Lord. May they be a shining light like a city on a hill that can't be hidden here in Greensboro. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen, amen. That's humbling to be prayed for by a missionary, someone who's sacrificed and who has gone. What a blessing that we have them with us today. Thank you, Andrew and Leah. There are a number of things that unite us as a church. Part of that is our doctrine. We believe the Word of God. We'll stand on the Word of God. We'll die for the Word of God. That's who God has made us. He's also given us a mission of making disciples. What a challenge, even as Andrew prayed that prayer, we might have thought, Andrew, 
Man, don't pray quite as intensely as that. I mean, we're comfortable, right? I mean, you're saying send us? That's, uh, that's a pretty drastic kind of prayer. But in seriousness, what a blessing that we get to serve our God and we get to be on mission together. There is a problem, though, today in the culture that we live in that has, I think, infected the church. And that is that we are not a united body. Now, I'm not talking about Lawndale specifically. I'm talking about the church generally. I'm talking about churches all over our nation in America right now are struggling to come together and to be one. I would say to you that the unity of the church is at stake in how we view each other. Sometimes we look at new members and long-term members and we see them differently. Sometimes we see young members and old members and we see them differently. Sometimes we see white members and we see black members and we see them differently. Sometimes we see male members and female members and we see them differently. The poor and the rich and we can go down the line. I would submit to you today that Jesus is vitally concerned about the unity of his people. That no matter what the world does to try to discourage us and to divide us, that the one place in Greensboro that ought to be one is Lawndale Baptist Church. We believe this book, we serve our Savior, and he's called us to be one. Before we get into 1 Timothy chapter 6, turn back to Galatians chapter 3 for just a moment. There are differences in how we are born and how we grow up in this world. We all have different backgrounds and we have uh, different genders, male and female. But notice in Christ, in Galatians 3, when we come into the family of God, it's equal footing Galatians 3 verse 26, For in Christ Jesus you're all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. God's called us to serve each other, love each other. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. We may have different backgrounds. We may have different callings in life. But God has a clear vision for what his people ought to be like. There are a lot of things that the church at Ephesus, where Timothy was pastoring, uh, were dividing them. Just backing up to chapter 5, how they treated each other as a family or not. Paul was trying to encourage them to encourage one another rather than rebuke each other. Rather than being harsh, be gentle, be kind. Older, treat the older men like dads and the older women like moms and treat the younger men like brothers and the younger women like sisters. He then moved on to say, I know there are issues in how the widows are being taken care of in the church. This is how it ought to look. And he spends a significant space trying to talk about how the younger and the older and especially widows interrelate to the family and to the greater church family. And then he dealt with how to treat elders. What if there's an accusation against an elder? What if an elder is confronted when there is an accusation? What if he doesn't repent if it is true and he persists in sin? And so these are some of the kinds of things that divide the church and Then we get to chapter 6, 
And remember, as we think about the first century, what was going on here? And Paul knew that it wasn't enough just to sweep under the rug this issue of slavery. It was present in the church. There, there would have been masters and uh, slaves starting to come into the faith and they would have been gathered there together and what do they do? How do they handle this thing? What's, what's a, a follower of Christ to do in a situation like this? And so Paul addressed slavery because it was important to God. Here are people that he has created. How are they to love one another? How are they to move forward together in the family of God, the body of Christ? And so first, let's think back to some historical context. There's a good little commentary series called the Christ-Centered Exposition. And there are a number of discovering uh, different sections of Scripture. And there's one on the pastoral letters that I, I think is especially helpful as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. And the writer goes through a few different ways that slavery has been understood historically, how it has been experienced. And so the first grouping is Hebrew servanthood, which makes sense for us. We have a biblical worldview, and we read some of the earlier writings of Scripture, especially as Moses was dealing with the issues of slavery even from early on in, in history. He was trying to help them navigate this. Uh, servanthood among the Hebrews in part was provided for those in need. Someone found themselves poor. They were unable to pay their bills or able to live and able to eat. They could come into the service of another until such time as they could pay their debts. And there was a set-apart time that they could actually be all freed so that no one stayed under that kind of bondage. In particular, you can read back in Leviticus 25, you want to write that in your notes, Leviticus 25, verses 35 and following, you can see this. It was like there's an allowance made because we're not in a perfect world. When sin entered in, there would be problems that would ensue. And none of that was racial. It was all economical when it came to what Moses was addressing in the law, Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus. Now, move that up to the first century with the Roman slavery. Again, it was not a racial thing or ethnic, ethnicity issue. It was more of an economic issue as the Romans dealt with this. Most historians will say up to a half of those who lived in the Roman Empire were slaves. Now, again, some of those would have been more like what we would refer to as the employer-employee relationship. But let's not kid ourselves. There are always abuses and always wrong things that happen in a sinful world, and people can be mistreated. And some were taken over in war and enslaved. And there were other reasons that some of them were in slavery, but you can imagine such a large number in that first century uh, enslaved, who Paul was referring to, and again, here they are in the church. Some of them were as slaves, lawyers and doctors and all kinds of professional kinds of people, and many of them were working very hard to attain their Roman citizenship. Now, there's a third kind of slavery that we find in history, and it was the indentured servitude indentured servitude. 
And more or less, again, it was very similar to the Hebrew servanthood. It was an agreed-upon path to freedom. Uh, Probably up to a half of the immigrants that came over as America was beginning from Europe were, were European whites who would have come over and they could not afford their passage someone would pay it for them and they would agree for a certain period of time to work for that person they were in debt and they would have been in service to that person again said over over half or probably estimated to have come over that way to America and then there's that fourth area that we're most familiar with and it's the African slave trade It was an easy area to target. And there was a lot of money being made across the board in such a horrific way to look at life and to treat people. This was different because people were being kidnapped and traded. And although these other forms might have been considered um, a, a lesser form of slavery and not necessarily kidnapping. Most of them would have been considered voluntary. This was not. This was kidnapping. This was treating people as property and less than human. God never condoned that. I think it's important for us to say that because some would, some would cancel Scripture because of the way that it addresses slavery. And the kind of slavery that what happened in the late 1700s and the early 1800s is not that which we're referring to here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We would, along with everybody else uh, in our day, in our time, in our church family, condemn that and not condone it in any kind of way. As a matter of fact, God himself condemned it. If you look back to Exodus chapter 21, you see a good scripture reference to this kind of, of slavery. In Exodus 21 verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. God didn't look too favorably on that. Even Paul, as he was writing Timothy, mentioned this. Did you catch that? When we were back in chapter 1, 1 Timothy 1, in verse 10, he's giving ways that the law shows us our sinfulness, how good it is, gracious it is, to point out our flaws and our sinfulness. And he's giving this list, and in verse 10 we pick it up, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers. You get that? Enslavers. Liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That's not what God intended. And God is not okay with that. It is wrong. It is sinful. It is bad. And it's unacceptable. I'm thankful that in 1803, England no longer allowed that kind of slavery. I'm thankful that 1865, America finally made that illegal here. And I'm thankful for believers who would stand up In a time like that, William Wilberforce, John Newton, Charles Spurgeon, and call out the church and say this is unacceptable. Our nation still today is living in the consequences of some of those horrific practices in that day. So as we move into this text, let's just make a clear statement for Lawndale. Someone might say, well, Rodney, where do you stand on this? 
Rodney, how do you feel about that? What do you have to say about this? Where are you leading Lawndale when it comes to that itself? And I wrote a statement. I tried to be uh, very clear about where, where I am. We at Lawndale, as your pastor, as I lead this church family, we at Lawndale will not condone, tolerate, or accept any form of ethnic bias or discrimination due to ethnicity, cultural background, descent, or skin color. We desire to demonstrate what it means to be one race made by God and for God. Due to our love for God and His creating each person in His image, we will be united as a church to love, to stand with, and model Jesus' love and treatment for all people. Church, this is our time to be united. And could we be united on anything less than seeing all people created by God, loved by God, and our having a chance to be brothers and sisters with people of all ages, all ethnicities, and be a light in Greensboro, North Carolina. Now, biblical theology usually takes an idea and expands and say, what does all the Bible say about this? So real quickly, let's just think about a biblical theology of slavery before we hit our text. One, slavery is the product of sin. There's no way that we can love God and love our neighbor as we've been instructed in the New Testament and would allow for the kind of slavery that we've talked about uh, earlier. Slavery is the product of sin. It wasn't created by God in the beginning. You don't find it in the creation of God. You don't find God making it a part of that perfect culture to begin with. And you don't find it when life is over and we're in the new world, in heaven, together. You see all people coming together, worshiping our God, equal around the throne of God. So slavery is the product of sin. It wasn't in his original design. It's only the result of sin. But since we are in a fallen world, God gave instructions for living in a fallen world. There are a lot of tough issues we face. How do we handle things? If we're growing in our faith and we should be making progress toward the kind of equality and the kind of Christ-likeness that God has ordained in His Word, then we're going to need help in living out our lives in this fallen world. And there, there are instructions given for us. The church at Corinth was dealing with a lot of things. And part of that book, Paul is just writing in response to questions. As God would have it, and, he was inspi- and Paul was inspired by God, he's answering with godly wisdom how to deal with certain things in life. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we see Paul giving some advice for how to handle some of these difficult matters and when you find yourself in some difficult spots. And in verse 31, he says in 1 Corinthians 10, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Paul wasn't trying to come up with some kind of political speech. He wasn't trying to come up with some kind of social agenda. He was coming up with the gospel. And he said, what do we do to get the gospel out to God's people? Because he knew it was the gospel that would change 
individual lives. It would change hearts. It would change worldviews. That a relationship with Jesus Christ would change people. That would affect families. Families, changed families would, would make changed churches. And changed churches would affect cultures and societies and cities and states. That's the direction that Paul was going in. And so I think it's important for us to complete our theology of slavery by saying God's instructions do not mean approval. One case in point is like divorce. Remember when Jesus was asked about divorce? And they were saying, well, Moses made uh, this allowance for divorce. And Jesus said, but you know, it wasn't like that from the beginning. That's not how God created marriage to be. And so the only reason an allowance was made because of the hardness of your hearts. So we might say that even about some of the passages that deal with slavery. That's not what God intended, but if someone finds them in that place, how do they handle that? And especially in the church where they may be worshiping and people are coming to faith, what do we do with this? How, how do we see God work in culture and society? How, how can we move toward oneness as a church body? And so with the first century, half the population being in that kind of relationship, Obviously, they'd be worshiping together. And so our first point this morning as we go to 1 Timothy 6 verse 1 is treat those in authority as worthy of all honor. That's what our text says. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. This would have been a difficult relationship. A yoke is oppressive. A yoke would speak of someone who is being treated as property. Even the idea of a master here is a little bit more intense than some words that could describe master. This is the same word that we get despot from. Someone with ultimate control. So how do you handle this? Well, God's still a God of order. How do we work through that? It's inequality, even in an employee-employer relationship, and I think we can make that application, especially from the first century. And that may be as much as anything is what Paul is referring to here. Are these who are working for their freedom and they're indentured for this time period. How do you handle those inequalities? How do you handle difficult situations when it's not really fair? Some of you grew up and maybe you were given more education. Some of you were, grew up and maybe you were given more resources. Some of you may have received less of either of those. And it seems like that's not fair. And how do we handle that with where we are today? And I would say inequalities in this world do not justify sinful behavior. So let's say you're working for someone who is not a very good boss. Maybe puts more on your plate than he does somebody else's. Or maybe uh, she favors someone else over you and you're working for a boss and it's, it's, it's not right. Well, for you to punch back and to hurt someone else or to give them what they deserve does not make sinful behavior Right. It does not just, two wrongs don't make a right, as many of you grew up hearing maybe from parents or grandparents. There's a bitterness, there's a disrespect that can start building in someone's heart because of inequalities. And God's saying that can't be. 
You see, as, as much as we talk about how we need to make sure we're valuing and lifting people up, we also don't want uh, to see people being lifted up and, and doing so in a way that dishonors God. Inequalities in the world do not justify sinful behavior. Now, if someone found them place themselves in this, what if you were working for a bad boss? What if there's a situation where that inequality is overbearing? Is it okay to change jobs? Well, yes. Uh, look back in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, even as Paul was dealing with slavery throughout, that, that Roman style of slavery in particular, notice in chapter 7 what he said to them, of 1 Corinthians, in verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. So you see employee, employer sitting out there, master, slave, congregation. Were you a bond, save, uh, a bond servant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. In other words, work to attain your citizenship in Rome. That's a good thing. God meant for us all to be free. And so when we look at our text this morning, we're trying to say, how do we do this in a way that pleases God? Because for us, it comes naturally, maybe even to, to betray our character in Christ, maybe our integrity in Christ in ways that are not fitting for a follower of Christ. I would, I would say to you, inequalities in this world give us opportunity to honor God. Inequalities in this world give us opportunity to honor God. Who do you represent? No matter where you are, if you're, if you're not being treated fairly in your neighborhood, you're not being treated fairly at work, how do you handle that? What are you going to do? Naturally, somebody hits you, you want to punch them back. And sometimes you don't want to just give them what they deserve. You want to give them a little bit more so that they feel it even more. Again, I'm being a little bit more... Uh, cross-referencing this morning, but look back in Romans chapter 12. This is, this is not an easy passage to read because we've all been here. But notice what he said in verse 17, Romans 12 verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. And listen to verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As you sit in your office at work or you're doing your job out on the field. Some of you ladies, you may be working from home as you help raise your families. And it's easy when things seem like it's difficult and it's hard and maybe, maybe you're carrying a heavier load at times and it's easy for us to be overcome by evil because maybe it's not fair. And we can become bitter and we can be withdrawn and we can make everybody else around us pay. Or we can leave that up to God and we can serve Him 
And we can do what we do as unto him and not for the people that we're working for. You see, inequalities in this world give us opportunity to honor God. I, I, I sometimes say to a, to a husband who's maybe his wife is not showing him respect. That's a greater opportunity for you to show the world what Jesus' love in the church looks like. In that moment, she, she may not be following you and she may not be showing respect, but when you love her like Jesus loves the church and you serve her, your, your message is even louder because people are wondering about, man, he, he sure does love her even in her moments. <laughs> but we balance that out, ladies, don't we, by saying there are a lot of times that your husbands may act in a way that's disrespect, uh, that he doesn't deserve respect. And so you're not giving him respect based on what he deserves. Now, I'm not talking about an abusive, immoral kind of relationship. I'm talking about the normal kinds of things that would happen in a marriage when, when uh, things are not easy. And, and ladies, what a wonderful chance to preach a loud message of what the church following Jesus looks like when you show respect to your husband. You see, you're not being overcome by evil. The evil that you're receiving is not causing you to be disobedient to God and to the teaching. You're being a good representative of God no matter what you're going through. It's your opportunity to show who you represent, God, and who you're following His teachings. There's always a higher calling for believers. Our calling is not just to please our husband and wife. Our calling is not just to please our boss. Our calling is to please God. And the best employees in any business should be those who follow Christ. Those who are employers should look at those who are in their service and they say, I can count on this, this man. I can count on this woman. He, he's going to be honest. He's going to always give me a good day's work. He's going to do it better than anybody else because he's a Christian. I can tell a difference in that person's life. We're, we're created to work, aren't we? God created us that way. He never said that uh, work is just the result of the fall. He's not just accommodating a sinful world. Before the fall, he told Adam, he put him in the garden to work it, to keep it, and to maintain it. Work is a good thing. Now, because of the fall, work became a more difficult thing. And so whether we're working outside the home or we're working inside the home, work is important to God. And He created us to work. And we show our representation of Him by our work. God worked for six days and then He rested. I think in many respects that's an example for us because God surely doesn't need to rest but it's showing that not only should we remember the Sabbath to keep it holy and, and set aside a day for rest and worship, but that means there are six days we should be working pretty hard. Here's what I would say to you about the opportunity we have to honor God. Instead of being a stumbling block, causing others to revile God and His Word. The goal for a follower of Christ is to be a fragrant aroma, a light, an attractive witness, pointing others to the beauty and grace of Christ. In other words, your life is an evangelistic tool. You're showing the world what following Christ looks like. Now, that's not enough. 
We've got to put words to that at some point. But in part, we're, we're living in such a way as that people ask us, why do you live like that? How can you, how can you show respect to that boss who you know is not treating you fairly? How can you show respect to that husband who's not being very sensitive about what you need in your life as well? And the simple answer is this. Because Jesus has shown me so much grace in my life. He died for me when I didn't deserve it. And I want the world to know what following Christ looks like. It's an evangelistic tool. It's my privilege to work hard, not for my boss, but as an offering to God. My work is an offering to God. Not because the boss deserves it. Children, your obedience to parents is not because your parents deserve it. Uh, husband and wife, your relationship is an offering to God, not because your husband or wife deserves it. It's because God deserves it. He deserves my best. And all that I do should be an offering. It's worship. My daily life is worship. It's an offering to God. So treat those in authority as worthy of all honor. That's what Paul counseled them to do as they found themselves in a pretty awkward kind of situation. And then secondly, treat those in authority who are believers with even more honor. It's interesting because most likely, as some of these people began to come to faith and they began to act like family together, there might be someone who, who saw their employer as... Uh, a Christian as a follower of Christ, so, you know, he's a nice guy. I think I'll take advantage of him. If I want to leave a little earlier or if I don't want to do this today, I'll, I'll just give a little less because, because he's, a, he's a nice guy or she's a nice lady. Uh, she says that she loves everybody. And again, that's our fallenness, isn't it? That's our sinfulness to somehow justify or rationalize why we're not giving all as an offering to God and honoring Him with what we do. And so equality must still recognize authority. Even though we're all the same in the eyes of God and we all come to faith in the same way and we're all going to stand before God in the same way, we live in a fallen world where there, there's not that kind of equality, but uh, it still must recognize authority to respect or disrespect. Am I going to honor the authority or am I going to dishonor? Am I going to bless the authority or am I going to curse the authority? Again, I would say Paul's not talking about an abusive kind of relationship. But what he's saying is don't take advantage of believers. It should be even more. There's something higher at play here and it's not what I get out of it. It's not my life is about me, but my life is an offering to God. It's about God. He put me here on earth. He's the one who gives me breath. He's the one who, who loved me enough to create me so that I could know him and enjoy him. And even as one of our catechisms a little earlier in the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, uh, verses 12 and following, remember what Paul was saying to the church as this is something that's being talked about, communicated about, and don't forget it as a saying that's trustworthy and true. Let's, let's try that again this morning with this particular one. So again, you've got your part, congregation, and then I've got my part. So, so let's, let's, as a congregation, say this together. While... 
You see, we're, we're living for something much greater than ourselves. If I was just living for myself, I might spend all my time just carving up my body. Now, some of you think I already do that. I know it, but that's a complete joke just in case you don't know. You know, you, know, you could spend all of your life just on earthly things to make yourself look better and to be better and all of that kind of stuff physically and financially and and it's not wrong to enjoy this life. There's some value to that, but, but that's not what we're here for. That's not the main thing. All of this stuff's going to pass away. These bodies that we have are, are, are going to go to dust and to dirt, and we're going to have a new body one day. But godliness, remember, my walk with God, my faithfulness to Him, giving good even when I've been given evil, it holds promise for the present life because God's going to do something through that. He's promised that he's working to, in the lives of unbelievers. He's working in the world so that they can see the difference that Christ makes. It holds promise for the present life, but I think even more importantly for the life to come. You can walk with God and be faithful to him in such a way as it, it profits you in this life and in the life to come, or you can just live for yourself and only do what you can do to get out of life all that you can on your own. It's not much of a choice when, it, when you really look at it. And so my statement to you, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. It's what Paul told Timothy. It's trustworthy. Bank on it. This is what's important for us as we think through what God would have us to do here on earth. Let me say as well, equality must still recognize generosity. It recognizes authority. It's, it's how we live here on earth. But what may take even more of a sacrifice on your part is that God not only wants us to exist, but he wants us to be generous in how we exist. We're giving everything. We're leaving it all out there for you, God. This is not for us. And, and, and it's interesting how he says that in verse 2. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better. Since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. These people follow Christ. Well, it's more. They're in the family. I, I'm telling you to respect and to honor and to give your best for, for those, for all employers. But when you have a brother, you ought to be thankful for that. You're blessed to have someone who loves Jesus and is trying to treat people with respect across the board. All the more, it should, it should be even a, a generosity that comes from us because we, we work for someone who follows Christ. And, and I like that, that second part of that verse uh, of of that last phrase, not only because they're believers, but they're beloved. They're loved by God and they should be loved by you. They're beloved. They're brothers. You treat them like brothers. That goes back to chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. We, we treat those in the, in the church family uh, older like fathers and mothers and younger like brothers and sisters. Well, this is, this is a person you should be loving, not hurting. You should be giving good. And I think what our text is trying to say is, work hard in this world. 
If your job is outside the home and God's given you a workplace and all uh, an employer and people that you work around, colleagues, and work hard. If you're working at home, and uh, again, a lot of the ladies especially as stay-at-home moms, you're, you're working for the Lord. That's, that's good, hard work that God wants you to do. And it's an offering for Him. Now, if you're just sitting around and you're twiddling your thumbs and you're not working, that's not good. You ought to be working. And the calling that God's given you. Paul thought it was so important that when he was writing the Thessalonians, remember in chapter 3, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, if a man's not willing to work, what? He shouldn't eat. That's how God thinks about work. Work's important. It builds character. It builds uh, integrity. It builds honesty. It builds unity. As we work alongside of people who may be like us and who may not be like us, people who may treat us well and people who may not treat us well, one of the great blessings a parent has is to teach his or her children how to work. So yes, making that bed up is important, kids. Cleaning the table, clearing out the dishwasher, trimming in the yard, mowing the grass, I mean, whatever, yes. And, and when a child gets to a certain age and parents are then able to help them find employment, that's a good thing. They learn how to work and they learn how to work for someone and work with others and God created them to work. In our culture today, there are a lot of people who don't want to work. Now, there are some who are unable to work. That's okay. But there are some who can work and they don't want to work. And if you're not willing to work, you can't eat. That makes sense, doesn't it? Now, let's close by coming back to ethnicity. And let's say it one more time. I, I'm going to say to you that if anywhere in Greensboro, people from different cultures and backgrounds and skin colors should come together and be one, it should be Lawndale Baptist Church. It would be sad, it would be heartbreaking to God, and I think to us as a congregation, if someone ever felt unwelcomed or unloved or unaccepted or any kind of inequality in our church body. So let me say it one more time. God help us at Lawndale never to let ethnicity or status in life Allow us to treat anyone as less than a person created by God and loved by God. All people who follow Christ must have access to membership and fellowship and leadership. I feel like when God called us to come back to Lawndale, it was in part to bring our church together in a unity in this city to show the world that it doesn't matter if you're old or young. Man, we're going to love each other and we're going, to, we're going to sacrifice for each other. And you've modeled that, church. Thank you for the adjustments that you're making. But also thought, man, what would it be like in Greensboro if we had people from, from different ethnicities who, who came together and loved each other and we didn't treat each other differently? We loved each other and our differences and we treated each other uh, equally God, what would that do in Greensboro? 
because it's not about any, any of us. It's not about any of our past. It's not any. It's all about the glory of God. That's what it's about. Are you about the glory of God? Are you about the glory of God? Are you willing to sacrifice and to give? Some of you have been giving sacrificially because you're not in the majority ethnicity of this congregation. Man, I am so grateful that you've been willing to give and to come and be a part of our church family. I know that's not always easy. And as a church family, I think we ought to note that and, and know that. And, and even, God, God, make us more diverse so that we can reflect your glory and so that we can be meeting together and worshiping with a taste of heaven where people from all tribes and all kindreds and all ethnicities worship the God because the ground at the foot of the cross is level. Father, there's no way that any church in this city can ever be the church you want it to be unless you help us. Would you grow our love for you in such a way as that we love each other well? Older and younger, black and white, employer, employee, God, grow our love for you more. Help us to love each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.